Take your copy of God's Word this morning and turn, if you would, to Titus chapter 2. We're going to read verses 11 through 14 here in a second. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Um, now, we're going to be in Titus today as we, as this morning I bring us a, a message on thinking through the, the new year that's coming, 2015, thinking about what biblical change looks like, because it's the time of year when everyone comes up with New Year's resolutions. Um, we will eventually get back to our series, Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. It's my preferred way to preach is verse by verse through books of the Bible. It helps us understand the context, the flow of the thought, and it helps us to also not avoid difficult passages when you're preaching verse by verse through the books of the Bible. And you don't just cherry pick what you like to preach about. So um, we will get back to our preferred method of preaching, which is verse by verse expository preaching which will happen when we get back into our series through the life of Christ. But today, we're going to look at this passage, and then the next three weeks, I want to give us three messages on where I really see Harbin's going from here forward. What's the vision for our church? What do we want to see happen here in Harbin's Community Baptist Church? So vision sermons, if you will, to help us get 2015 started. And I think it's important because um, I want us... And we're going to go to the scriptures to help us formulate that vision. But I want it to be clear who we are as a church and what it is that we feel God is wanting us to do and accomplish here in this community. Now, as you're turning to Titus 2.11, I've got a question for you. Um, kids, maybe. Who is your favorite superhero? Favorite superhero? Austin. Thor. All right. Thor. He didn't quite into, fit into the category that I'm thinking of here for superheroes, but Thor is one of them. All right, we'll take Thor. Someone else. All oh, right here. Spider-Man. That's a good one. That's a good one. Over here. God. <laughs> Rowan. I can always count on Rowan just surprising me. Yes, God is the only true superhero, isn't he? But when we think about superheroes, of course, all these other superheroes are imaginary. Why is it that we like superheroes? Our culture seems today, in this day and age, to be fascinated with superhero stories. I think I read that Marvel has just signed a deal to do 29 movies over the next seven years. 29 new Marvel superhero movies over the course of seven years. That seems absolutely ridiculous to me. But that's how many superhero movies our culture is demanding right now. We want more movies about superheroes. Why, do we, why are we attracted to, why do we like superheroes? I think it's because the superheroes represent something that we desire to see in ourselves. You see, all these people are just seemingly normal people. Peter Parker, just a normal dude, takes pictures, right? Um, Bruce Wayne, just a normal millionaire, Okay. All right, normal people, except in the moment when they need to be something different, they can transform, and they can become something beyond normal, beyond average. Batman, Spider-Man, no longer just a mild-mannered reporter, now you're Superman. And I think there's a, a desire in all of us to change to be different, to be transformed, to be better than this. 
It's deep-seated in our hearts. And usually after Christmas, as the year winds down, we do a lot of self-reflection. We look back on certain things from the past year and we celebrate some things. But there's some things we wish we could have just done differently. At the same time, we, we look back, we're also looking forward. We're anticipating new things in the new year. And, and so we set out with fresh motivation and we set out with a desire to change. And that's why, why we come up with these things called New Year's resolutions. Because we want to change. And though we can't transform into, into superheroes, we do formulate plans to, to help us be a better person or a different person in the coming year. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. I mean, all of us want to change in certain ways, and all of us need to change in certain ways. If you're a Christian here, you need to change in the sense that you need to grow in Christ-likeness, in holiness, in sanctification. But, but how do we go about change? How do, we, how do we go about such changes? Do we just need to formulate a really, really good, solid list of New Year's resolutions, is that, will that do it? Is that all we need? Do we just need more discipline in our life? What type of change do you want to see this morning in your life in 2015? Why do you want to change in 2015? And what is your motive for change in 2015? And so as we head into the new year, I want us to help, help us think biblically about change and so I want us to look at Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. So please stand now as we read this passage of Scripture. This epistle written by the Apostle Paul to Titus, who was apparently an elder on the island of Crete. And what Paul is doing in this epistle is exhorting Titus to teach the people. And one of the things he wants to teach the people is what he says here in these verses. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 this is the word of the Lord. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your word. It is infallible. It is inerrant. It is all we need for life and practice. So God, I pray as we come to this little portion of this little book in the Bible that we wouldn't, we wouldn't minimize it. We would see that this is this is huge. This is important. This is you speaking to us directly through a written word. So God, help us to be hearers this morning. Give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see. And Lord, help me to speak clearly and faithfully. Lord, strike any error that might be in my words this morning. Keep anyone in here from remembering anything I have to say if it's wrong. But Lord, anything that I say that is in line with and in accordance with your word... I pray that you'd open up all of our ears to hear it. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Now let me just say this morning, if you are a Christian, if you are a child of God, 
you should be changing. If you are truly a believer, a born-again Christian, you should be in the process of change. You should be growing, growing in maturity. You should be progressing in holiness. You should be becoming more like your father. You see, we have been adopted into the family of God. I read a a story this week of a little girl named Sophie who was adopted into a family. The first few days, she strolled around the house very nervously. She was actually nervous because she feared getting one of the beatings that she was used to getting whenever something got broken. That was her old home. That was her old life. She was in her room, and the toys in her room, she didn't play with them. She didn't touch them. They went unplayed with partially because she feared that same fear I just mentioned of breaking something and therefore being beaten, even though that wasn't going to happen in her new home. But also, she didn't know how to play. She had never had anyone play with her before. At dinner time, she secretly stuffed her pockets full of food because she she only knew the world that she had come from where another meal was never guaranteed. She wouldn't sleep at night because she felt very alone in her big new room. And she would cry out in her loneliness in constant fear that if she fell asleep, she might wake up and be abandoned. So she would never get close to people. She would never become attached. The people that tell the story say that three years later, things were very different for Sophie. Now when she'd wake up in the middle of the night after having a nightmare, she'd go and crawl into her parents' bed and lay down with them and cuddle up with them. She would randomly come up and and hold her adoptive mom's hand or lay her head down in her adopted mom's lap and would tell her, both of her parents, that she loved them. She still has some hurdles to overcome even three years later, but she's starting to play with toys like a normal child. She's sleeping at night, and she's no longer hiding food away. She's starting to trust that her parents do indeed love her, and she is therefore in the process of change. Now, Sophie had a new identity from day one. The moment the adoption papers were signed, Sophie had a new identity and a new family. She had become a child in a new home, but initially, initially, she still acted like a child of the streets. Her actions and her attitudes were shaped by her old identity, and she was having to grow into her new identity. Friends, we, if you're a Christian, we... Christians have been purchased out of slavery and adopted into the family of God. The problem is that we, like Sophie, oftentimes act according to our old identity. We must change, just like Sophie. We must grow. We must mature. We must become who we already are when the adoption papers were signed by the blood of Christ. I want us to examine three aspects of change this morning from this text. First of all, 
let us examine the means of change. Let us examine the means of change, which is the grace of God in Jesus Christ. The means, how we change. We change by the grace of God that we have in Jesus Christ. Verse 11 of Titus 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And the next word is important. Training us. That's the change I'm talking about. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. The change that we want to see is represented in that word training there in verse 12. The renouncing of ungodliness and the living out of godliness. But by what means? How do we change? How are we trained? Well, according to verse 11, it's by grace. Now, real quickly here, the word for at the beginning of this text, for the grace of God has appeared, that should be a clue to us. And this is why I prefer to study expository verse by verse because you already have the context. But here, since we're picking this passage to to preach on today, I need to help us see what for is there for, okay? It's, It's tying these verses back to the previous verses. And if we look at verse 10, we see Paul exhorting Titus to teach the people of Crete that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Now, what Paul has been doing, he's been telling Titus to help all the people in his church, from the older women down to the, to the slaves, help all the people in his church beautify their salvation with godliness, adorn their salvation with good works and good deeds. And so now he's expanding upon that concept And the first thing he wants to expand on is the idea at the very end of verse 10 that God is our Savior. And so he begins to talk about grace. Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared. Now how has grace appeared? Well, this is referring to the arrival of Jesus Christ on the scene. We've just been celebrating the past few weeks our Advent. Advent means coming, the arrival of Jesus on the scene. And the reason I wanted to keep the Advent candles lit today, because as we talk about change, it cannot happen unless Christ is central. It cannot happen unless we understand that grace has come. If we think that change, growth, maturity in the Christian walk is somehow separate over here, apart from what Christ has done, then we've totally missed the boat. And so because Christ has come, Grace has come. That's what we've been celebrating over the past few weeks. We have the tendency to think of grace as some sort of force. But scripture always attaches grace to a person, to Jesus Christ. So when Jesus arrives, grace arrives. Now does this, does this mean when it says here that the grace of God has appeared, does this mean that God's grace was absent before the coming of Christ? Absolutely not. Those who say that the God of the Old Testament is a God of judgment, while the God of the New Testament is a God of grace, are really missing the big picture. God does not change, and there's multiple scriptures we could go to to prove that. God has no need to make New Year's resolutions. He's always been a gracious God. Exodus 34, verse 6 says, The Lord passed... God passing before Moses, it says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God 
merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. He has always been a God of grace. Yet he likewise has always been a God of justice. He still is today. And that's why it goes on in verse 7 to say, he, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So how could God be both so very gracious towards sinners like you and I, and yet still maintain perfect justice and judgment against sin? Well, the only answer is the cross. Therefore, now God's grace has indeed appeared in its fullness. For Jesus in the flesh is the means by which a righteous God can show grace toward mankind while not overlooking sin. So that's why grace has arrived. Now, when Paul writes that the grace of God has appeared, he is referring to the full embodiment of of grace in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. John 1.14, passage that was our memory verse for this week, says this. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then in verse 16, from his fullness we have received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So he has appeared, grace has appeared at the fullness of time. And what has the grace of God come on the scene to do? Number one, we see two things in verses 11 and 12. Number one, it has appeared to save us. But number two, to train us. We could say that grace has come to rescue us and restore us, if you will. That would be a way to use synonyms to say the same thing. For the grace of God has appeared Number one, bringing salvation for all people. And then number two, verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. So grace saves us and grace changes us. But before we can dig deep into change, let us consider real quickly this morning our salvation. For grace of God has appeared bringing salvation. Before we can talk about change, we must understand our need for rescue. Before Sophie began to act in accordance with her adoptive family, she had to be adopted, first of all. She had to be saved. Many people want the benefits of adoption without recognizing the necessity of salvation. Matter of fact, we're foolish if that's how we evangelize Peter and I have had this conversation before. If we throw all the benefits out there, hey, look what happens if you come to God. But we don't expose their need to be saved because of their depraved nature. We're fooling them. It's it's a mistake to evangelize in that sort of way. You, You can't give all the good news of what it means to be adopted into the family of God if they don't know the bad news that, first of all, they're already outside of the family of God. And beyond just being outside the family of God, there are wicked, rebellious sinners that are fighting against God. As we all were prior to grace. And so, we need to understand salvation first and foremost before we can begin to talk about change. Before any person can experience positive, God-honoring change in his or her life, he, he or she must 
realize their need for salvation, which means he or she must recognize his or her own depravity. They must see the depth and the deadliness of their sin. We love to minimize sin, don't we? Man is not merely mistaken in need of correction. Man is not merely misled in need of better direction. Man is not merely sick and needed some help to get back on his feet or merely burdened or disheartened and in need some sort of encouragement. Man is dead in sin and is in need of new life. We see this later in Titus, Titus 3, 3. Paul says this, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Paul includes himself here in this list. We were all totally depraved, but that's the glory of grace. It didn't appear to give us a little fix or a boost to our morale so that we could pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and then live for God. No, grace came to rescue those who couldn't rescue themselves. And that's what makes grace, grace. So Paul continues in verse 4 of chapter 3. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. The same word appeared that we have in verse 11. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. But according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. To appreciate grace we must understand depravity. Now if we don't get the degree to which we need God's grace to save us, then we'll never understand the degree to which we need God's grace to train us, to continually change us. In other words, if we don't understand our adoption, our new identity, we won't see the need to live according to that new identity. So one of the reasons many people fail to experience significant spiritual growth and spiritual change in their lives can be directly correlated to a deficient view of how thoroughly sinful they were when they were saved. Unfortunately, the church in America today, we have minimized depravity. We don't like to talk about depravity. We like to think that there's something good in every man and in every woman and in every child instead of understanding what the Scriptures teach us, that we're dead in our sins and in our Nature our, that we've inherited from Adam, we are not only prone to sin, we are guilty of sin. We are guilty of the very insurrection that Adam was guilty of. We've inherited the guilt and the sinful nature. And so if we don't understand that in the church, well then it's going to be hard for people to grow spiritually because if they think there's a certain amount of goodness in them anyway before they were saved, well then certainly now that I'm a believer, there's a certain amount of goodness in me and I can just be who I need to be for God instead of relying on grace. You will never experience transformation in your spiritual walk apart from that word right there that starts with the letter G, grace. Everything else will be just faux finished works that you're able to somehow conjure up in your strength. So grace is utterly important. We're saved by grace. We're trained by grace. But that's not how we usually approach New Year's resolutions, is it? We think we can just create the right resolutions, generate the right rules, fabricate the right systems, and that we can somehow do it. But Paul says all that kind of stuff is useless. In Colossians chapter 2, he says this, 
If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to the things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So you may come up with some really good systems of discipline this year and New Year's resolutions. Hey, you may have a smartphone app to help you stick with your New Year's resolutions. I'm sure there's one out there. I don't know what to do. Buzz every five minutes to remind you of what the resolution is. One of you entrepreneurs out there thinking, aha, that would be a good idea. But I'm saying no matter what man comes up with, it's only the appearance of wisdom. It's foolishness when it really comes down to it. Because if it's just man, it's apart from grace and it accomplishes nothing. The Puritan John Flavel once said this. We are more able to stop the sun in its course or make rivers run uphill as by our own skill and power to rule and order our own hearts. The problem is that we fail to see what needs to change. You see, all that graceless resolutions do is change our outward behavior. And it only changes that for a time. But New Year's resolutions and these things that Paul speaks of here in Colossians 2, these these, um, man-made precepts and teachings and they have the appearance of wisdom, all they can do is change the outward appearance, but they can do nothing to change the heart. Sin comes from deep inside. Only grace changes the heart. And that's what we need. We need hearts to be changed. That's why Jesus says what comes out of a person is what defiles them for, for from within. Out of the heart of a man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person is what Jesus says. If you believe that grace saved you, you must see that only grace can change you. Don't be a foolish Galatian. In Galatians 3.3, Paul says, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? It's like tightrope. Let's let's say, just for the sake of illustration, let's say you're going to cross the Niagara Falls on a tightrope. How many of you think you can accomplish that in your own strength? No net, nothing. You're not going to do it. But let's say you get on the back of an expert tightroper who has done this a million times. And you, you, Carrie still wouldn't do it. All right, but just for the sake of illustration, you're on the back of this tightroper. And he's got you and he's got you halfway across. It'd be foolish at that point to look at him and say, hey, thank you for getting me this far. Let me finish it. Let me just get off your back here and get on this rope and let me finish the course here. Great job getting me up to this point. That's what it's like to rely on God for grace for salvation, but not for our sanctification. It's absolute and utter foolishness. It's contrary to our adoptive identity. If we think we can make change in 2015 by our own power, we're fools. If I just do this, or if I just protect my home from this, or if I just make my kids do this, or if I just avoid this, 
Are we to pursue holiness? Yes. But legalism tries to make holiness manageable by our own effort and tries to thereby make sanctification an achievement on our part. Perhaps you're thinking, well, I'm not a legalist. I just take holiness seriously. But I'm asking you this this morning. Are you pursuing your holiness by grace, through faith, or by your own strength? Are you pursuing holiness apart from the same means by which you were saved? If so, then you only have the appearance of wisdom. You're actually a fool. We must repent from our bad deeds as well as the good deeds that we're putting faith in. The good deeds that we've used to try to attempt to change ourselves. So we are, friends, to work hard. We are to strive. We are to pursue holiness, yes. But as Kevin DeYoung puts it, it's a spirit-led, grace-fueled, gospel-driven effort. And therefore, we pursue change in 2015, number one, through hard work that begins by recognizing God is graciously, graciously at work in us. That's the first thing. we got to recognize it's God at work in us. Number two, through hard work that carries on by asking God to continue to work in us. Continually going before God, please God, continue to change me. And then number three, through hard work that perseveres while praising God for what he has achieved in us. He gets all the glory. If there's anything we're doing better in 2015 as a Christian than 2014, if we've been pursuing it by grace, our hearts will be pointed to God in praise. But if we've been pursuing it by our own flesh, guess what? Our hearts will be pointed toward us and will be drawing people's attention to what we've accomplished so that we can get the praise. Sometimes it's very hard to discern whether or not what's happening in our life is our own effort or if it's God's effort. Here's the deal. It's God's effort if we're giving him all the glory. It's our effort if we're trying to steal any of that glory. And so we pursue holiness, yes, but we do it by faith, through grace, by grace, through faith. It is God's work. There are several passages we could read this morning. Let me just read a couple of them to you. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And then later in verse 24, it says, he will surely do it. 1 Corinthians 15, 10, Paul says, But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. And of course, Philippians 2, 12, which we read last week. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we see the means of change is grace. And the second thing I want us to see this morning, I want us to consider the measure of change, which is the image of God in Christ Jesus, the measure of our change, meaning the type of change that needs to take place, what needs to happen, what are we being trained to Well, let's look. Verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live controlled, self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Now, this word training here is a word usually used to refer to child rearing, meaning that as we grow in holiness, we are growing in maturity. Mature children learn to renounce. They learn to say, say no to things. 
we're told here to renounce ungodliness. Ungodliness means a life that refuses to acknowledge God. It's a God-ignoring life. It can involve open immorality and moral evil, but it's more than that. It's deeper than that. We usually think of ungodliness as someone who is openly, openly and blatantly against God. Someone that hates God, that hates God's word, that hates God's people. Someone like Bill Maher might come to mind, right? That's an ungodly man. But ungodliness involves any time God is ignored. So, when you're in that, when you're driving down the road and someone almost hits you and you barely miss a serious accident... And you say, boy, that was lucky. That's an ungodly statement. That's a God-ignoring statement. That is ignoring God, and that is the air that we breathe. So Paul here is speaking to believers. Believers can practice ungodliness. And we are to say no, we are to renounce worldly passions. Passions meaning the affections and the desires of our sinful hearts. This means the deep-seated selfishness, pride, arrogance, desire for control, power, greed, lust, pleasure. Pleasure in, in ourselves instead of pleasure in God. Esteeming of ourselves instead of esteeming God. These are worldly or fleshly passions. Now when we hear the word worldly passions, I think most people think of adult bookstores or, or bars or something like that. I want you to think of something totally different. I want you to think of your own anger that explodes when you get cut off in traffic. That's a worldly passion. I want you to think of your own impatience that boils up in you when your kids are annoying you after a tough day of work. That's a worldly passion. I want you to think of your own selfishness that, that surfaces when your spouse just needs some extra attention this week. That's a worldly passion. These are worldly passions in our hearts that must be renounced. That's the change that needs to happen in 2015. Worldly, fleshly passions that still remain in our hearts that are at odds with the indwelling Spirit of God. For the Christian, for the Christian, the reason we feel the need for change is that there's a very real war going on in our hearts. Galatians 5 says this, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Oh, we need to have faith in God's grace to train us, to help us be the people we need to be. We need grace to see our sin in a more profound way than we've ever seen it before. You see, we look at our frustration. Let me just give you an example here. We look at our frustration, at our anger, at our stress. And what do we do? We make a New Year's resolution to be more organized in 2015. Let's be more organized. Let's be more focused. Let's be more disciplined. And hopefully the anger, the stress, the frustration, the anxiety, that stuff will go away. And maybe it has the appearance of wisdom. Because we're able to do something in our flesh And things do seem to go better for a while, but that's only until something else surfaces. Some other obstacle comes into our lives, some detour in our our plan. And what do you know? It's all there again. The anger, the frustration, the anxiety. It's all back. Why is it back? Because 
those things are worldly passions that reside in the heart. And just making rules will never deal with the heart. It will never get to the heart of the issues. We need to recognize that there's sin in our heart. We need to think more deeply about our sin. So, we need grace to do that. 1 John 2, 16 says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes of pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The change God wants to make in us in 2015 is not cosmetic spiritual change, but deep-seated spiritual change. Anger, frustration, depression, fear, jealousy, you name it. They arise when our worldly passions, our desires are thwarted. James 4.1 says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. Worldly passions at war with God. And James goes on, verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. We've got to stop thinking about friendship with the world as going out to bars or going out and doing something that the world considers risque or whatever. Worldliness happens right here in the privacy of your own home, in your own heart, as you put your desires above God's and you get ticked off when you don't get what you want. I want what I want, so I do what I do. So get out of my way. That is worldly passion. It has nothing to do with clicking on some nasty stuff on your computer. It has everything to do with what's right here in your heart. And it comes out to your kids, to your spouse, to your coworker. And it's in every single one of us. I was so frustrated this weekend. I'll just be honest. I'm confessing my sin to you right now. I was frustrated. Nothing seemed to be going right. The sermon wasn't coming together. This morning, nothing was working together. I couldn't print stuff from far away. I get here and we're having a hard time getting the computers going. I'm just frustrated. And I'm frustrated at home. And, and Noah looks at me and says, well, you know, you should need to trust the sovereignty of God. I wanted to hit him. Hush, stop preaching to me. But he's right. I want to be in control. And that's the passion of my heart. And when I can't have control, I get mad and everyone better get out of my way. That's worldly passion. And that's what I've got to fight and you've got to fight in 2015. That's what we all have to fight. So, we are to denounce, we are to put off, we are to put to death ungodliness and worldly passions. And instead, we are to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. And I know we're running a little bit late, so I'm going to speed through the rest of this sermon. The, the word self-controlled here means to be sober-minded, meaning we are not to be controlled by anything other than God. It means we are to be resolute and unyielding. God's grace provi- provides us with self-control. Remember, it's all about grace. It's all about grace. Where does self-control come from? It is a fruit of what? The Spirit. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Self-control doesn't come by systems and strategies. I'm not saying those things can't be helpful. What I'm saying is don't put your hope in those things to somehow implant 
self-control into your heart. So if you want to read through the Bible in 2015, the best thing you can do is get on your knees today and ask God for the self-control and discipline to do it and for him to put it in your heart. Not go out and look for a better Bible reading plan. I'm not saying that Bible reading plans aren't good. Use them. That's fine. But don't put your hope in them to change your heart. If you don't desire to read God's word, if you don't want to be disciplined to read God's word, no reading plan on a piece of paper is going to change that. That's a heart change. So the first thing you got to do is get on your knees and say, God, change me. I'm believing that you will. I'm believing that you can. I'm putting my faith in you. And I'm asking for your grace to do a work in me to make me a man who wants your word so bad. I can't go a morning without it. That's how change happens in 2015, or should. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, is what Romans 14, 17 says. Upright simply means to live righteously. It means to be conformed to God's standards. And the Holy Spirit within us helps us to live upright lives. We have the batteries we need to live the upright life. There's nothing more annoying you know, forgetting the batteries on Christmas morning, right? They open the gifts and you realize you see that little thing on the back of the, of the package and it says, batteries not included. And you're like, oh, man. Because you didn't go out and buy the batteries. Well, friends, guess what? When we were purchased by the blood of Christ, the batteries were included. And the batteries are the Holy Spirit of God residing within you to help you, to, to cause you to walk in his statutes according to Ezekiel 36, 27. That is a glorious, glorious truth. And so we are to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. If ungodliness is God ignoring, then godliness is God imitating. God imaging. This is what we were created to do. We were created to be imagers of God. We were designed to be godly. We were designed to be holy. And again, the only way that can happen in fallen creatures like us is by grace. God created man in his own image. We read that in Genesis 1.27. And we were created to reflect and radiate his glory as we ruled over creation. Yet according to Romans 3.23, we all sin and fall short of that glory of God. And we fail to image God as we were created to. And there's nothing that we could do in our power to restore that image. We were defaced. We were like a defaced work of art. We were only worthy of the garbage heap. But enter grace. Enter Jesus. Jesus, the creator and sustainer of the cosmos, enters the cosmos. He takes on human flesh. He becomes 100% man. He's already 100% God. So he achieves what we could not do. He perfectly images the Father on our behalf. Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And so now we, who are Christians, by grace alone are becoming image bearers because we are united to Christ by faith. We become image bearers, first of all, by imitating Christ. Ephesians 5.1. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So yes, grace-enabled imitation. But even more, God's image is restored in us by grace-bought imputation. Christ's images, image is credited to us and then manifesting itself in us as we grow in faith 
through our union with Christ. Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. 1 Corinthians 15, 49. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. In Colossians 3, 10. Put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Image is being restored. That's what grace is doing. That's the change we should be asking for in 2015. You know what most of us do in 2015? We come up with our resolutions so that we can put a mask on to look like something to the world when it's not really who we are. What should really be happening is that our image is changing. We're actually becoming like Christ from the inside out. And that becomes our motivation. As we pursue the image of God by the grace of God, we look in faith to Jesus, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God, who said, let light light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And as we look and see the glory of God in the face of Jesus, we experience spirit-wrought freedom and are truly transformed, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 17. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And so that takes me directly into our last point this morning. Let us contemplate the motive of change, which is the glory of God in Jesus Christ. That's our motive. The glory of God in Jesus Christ. What motivates us as we are trained in righteousness? Verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. What's your motive for change in 2015? I'll tell you what, most people's motives falls into one of three categories. Number one, to prove myself to myself. I want to prove myself to myself. I want to, I want to show myself that I can do better this year. Maybe I'm disappointed in myself and I just need to, to prove myself to myself that I can do it. Or number two, prove myself to others. I want to show everyone else I can do it. Why do, why do most of us want to lose weight with our New Year's resolution? I doubt it's usually to glorify God in our bodies. It's usually to impress others. I don't want this shirt hanging over my belt any longer because people kind of look at me, I, and you know. No. Our desires have to be much greater than that. Or number three, to prove ourselves to God. Sometimes we want to prove ourselves to ourselves. Sometimes we want to prove ourselves to others. But a lot of times we want to just prove ourselves to God. I'll show you how much I love you, Jesus. I'm going to read the Bible. Seven times in 2015, all the way through. And you'll see, Jesus, you'll see how much I love you. Friends, you can do nothing to increase God's grace in your life. His grace is there. It's unmerited. You're not going to earn it anymore. But how does Paul motivate us as he teaches us that grace can train us and change us? Well, he tells us to not look within ourselves and not to look at others. He tells us to look to Christ to look forward and backward. 
And I wish I had more time to really do more exposition on the end of this passage. Someday, Lord willing, we'll preach through Titus and we'll be able to do that. But just look at this. First of all, he looks forward. Verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We continue to have faith in God's grace to make us who he wants us to be by looking to the future. We have a blessed hope. We have a sure hope. Jesus is coming. His name is Jesus and he's returning. He is our hope. So just as grace appeared, we read here that it will appear again. Just as we celebrated Advent, we await the second Advent. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. By the way, this text here is a great text, especially if you're speaking to a Jehovah's Witness, to talk about the deity of Christ. It says, the, great, the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There is one article there referring to both God and Jesus. The glory of God is seen in the face of Christ Jesus. And we will see it fully one day. And that should motivate us and that should empower us. That's faith in future grace, as John Piper puts it. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And we don't have time to go deep into that, but listen to that. Do you see the connection there? The connection between holiness and looking in hope toward the coming of Christ. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. The fuel in our engine to persevere in holiness is the hope and the sure, steadfast confidence that we will one day see Christ and then therefore be like Christ. That's the fuel that keeps us going. That's that's what motivates us. Is that we will see God's glory in Jesus Christ and we will be transformed Philippians 3.21 says that Jesus will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to even subject all things to himself. We will no longer have fallen short of the glory of God. So do you want to change in 2015? Then, then look forward to Christ and his glorious return. But Paul also teaches us to look back. And we're going to conclude with this. Verse 14 is looking backward at He who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. In other words, we remember what Christ has done. This, again, is the already not yet dichotomy of the Christian life. We are becoming who we already are. Our justification and our sanctification were secure when Christ finished his work on Calvary. The moment he said, it is finished. He gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness, all our sin, past, present, and future were taken care of at Calvary. And that should fuel our ability to keep moving forward and keep being trained by grace. What fuels Sophie to grow in her love for and her devotion to her new adoptive family? What fuels that? It's the rock-solid confidence that there's a document that says, Sophie, you belong to us. And it's signed. And it has a seal on it. She's theirs. Forever. They're forever family. 
And so she can keep investing her love and being vulnerable with her new family. And so too for us, what, has, what Christ did when he signed our adoption on the cross, that should motivate us. Our new identity, which was secure at Calvary, that should motivate us to pursue holiness. And how does this affect us just very practically? Well, friends, when we understand that our sin has all been paid for, that grace is complete in the sense that our, our sanctification is done, even though we are still growing in our sanctification, first of all, it should not make us like those people Paul condemned in Romans 6, 1 through 2, who thought that grace was just a license to go on and sin however they wanted. We know that that is wrong. Paul says here what this should do in us as we look forward and we look back, what it should do is cause us to become people who are zealous for good works. Zealous not to earn anything from God, but zealous because we know God is at work in us, changing us, and that work is, is a rock-solid certainty. He will finish what he began because he signed the paperwork on Calvary. You see, if we've been saved, we've been given a new DNA. We have our Father's DNA, and so we can't help but begin to look like him. So where does that leave us this morning? Well, friends, I simply wanted to leave all of those Christians in here, leave us standing on grace. I don't care if you have a list of New Year's resolutions. I don't care if you develop a tight-knit system of discipleship for 2015. What I care about is this. Are you relying on grace or your own strength? Are you putting your faith in Christ? Just as you put your faith in him to save you by his grace, whenever that was, so too you need to put your faith in him to sustain you by his grace in 2015. So Christian, examine your motives. Why do you want to change? Examine the measure of change that you're aiming for. What do you want to change into? Who do you want to be? And examine the means by which you are expecting that change to take place. What's motivating you? How do you think this change is going to take place? If your answers are not the glory of God, the image of God, and the grace of God, you need to stop, you need to pray, you need to repent. To the non-Christian this morning, I'm not sure why you want to change. Maybe you just want to be like a superhero. I don't know. Maybe you're trying to prove something to yourself or to others or to God. Stop trying to impress God. Stop thinking that God is impressed by you. You need to be transformed. Recognize your depravity. Turn from your sin. Cast yourself upon the grace and mercy of God by putting all your faith in Christ. For it is Jesus who bore the just wrath of God for those who trust in him. And it is Jesus who gives his life, his righteousness, so that we can be with God, pure, blameless, and a people for his own possession. So put all your hope in Jesus, friend, in 2015. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness to us and your mercy and your grace. You do not change. You've always been the same. You've always been a God of grace and mercy. But you're also always, always still a God of justice and righteousness. And so you can't overlook sin. So God, if there be anyone in this room who is who's living in their sins, they, they've never turned from them, they never repented of their sin and come to Christ for the forgiveness that, 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 that he made available at Calvary. Lord, I pray that you would do a work on their heart right now. Holy Spirit, move in their heart right now. Soften that hard heart so that they might believe in Jesus and turn to him this morning. And Lord, 
whoever's a Christian here this morning that, that might be putting their hope in their flesh to be different in 2015, God, I just beg that you would help them to see that that's utter foolishness. It only has the appearance of wisdom. But instead, just like the way they were saved, just like what I just prayed, Father, for those in here who aren't believers, they need to come to you in the same way, begging you to do a work in their heart, change them. And and so, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would change all of us in 2015. I want to be a more mature man, a better father, a better husband, a much better pastor. I want to be better, but I cannot do it in my strength in any sort of way. So God, I ask you for the grace to change me and change every single person in this room. Help us to live in our new identity as adopted children. Oh, Father, help us to see these things and believe these things, to have faith that these things are so and experience your grace through that faith. So Father, Make us people of faith in 2015. Thank you for this good day you've given us. Lord, I do pray for those who could not be here today, whether it be they're traveling, visiting family, or the families that are sick this morning because of just the the junk that seems to be going through our state right now. So, Lord, I just pray for your your comfort, your presence with them as they couldn't be with with us this morning. But now as we close in one song, Lord, I pray that you be glorified. Lord, check our motives as we sing this song. May we sing it for your glory. We pray this in your name. Amen.